3: Welcome to the Monday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. You need only to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at CalvarySA.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, I want to remind you the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit one button, the call now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I hope and I'm praying you had a great weekend in church. Lots of people got saved. Everybody that gets saved, were one person closer to Jesus returning. Um, We had a good day here yesterday, lots and lots of people. It was a a good day. Tonight here at uh, Calvary Chapel, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at seven o'clock. The ladies are doing the second installment on their Sweet Summer Devotion Series. Uh, Michaela Shank, she is the youngest of the ladies who will be speaking this summer. Uh, She was literally born here in the church so uh, it would be an interesting perspective. That's tonight. You can watch it at calvarysa.com. But as I remind you often, there's always a lot of great ministry done here in person after the teaching part is done. Uh, and ladies, in order to be a participant in that, you got to be here. And we've got room, so we'd love to have you here. Well, let's get to some questions while we await any phone calls. Here is the first question. It is from Derek. From our email inbox, he said, Pastor Ron, how do you feel about Christians attending the upcoming Pride Parade to evangelize here in San Antonio? Derek, um, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth, at least that's how it's going to sound for a moment. uh, moment. I'm always in favor of evangelizing. Uh, Sharing our faith is something that we're commanded to do. Um, Certainly, there's going to be a lot of unsafe people there. Um, um, but, but, and here's the other side of my mouth. Um, I think everybody who thinks they're going to go down there to evangelize really needs to check their heart first. Um, this shouldn't be a place where we get into confrontations. Uh, this isn't something that we ought to do to, to put on a show or to be a part of a show. Uh, if you can't go there in love and you can't talk to people civilly and quietly, and humbly, with the heart of Christ, remembering that Jesus loves the people who are trapped in that sin. If you can't go uh, like that, then then I I would say don't go at all. Um, I just think we're 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 looking for a fight. I think there's a lot of people that we could share Jesus with. Um, next Saturday, I guess, is the parade. Um, there's a lot of people that we can share Jesus with in restaurants, in malls, in our neighborhoods. Uh, and, and I just, I, I would say, check your heart, Derek, before you go. I'm not a fan of confrontational evangelism. Um, I think it's really hard. I think Christians get, uh, they find themselves in, in a, a situation where the enemy can tempt them. They, they forget to look at the people that were supposedly evangelizing with love. Um, We we approach them like they're broken or defective or something. Um, And what we have to remember is that um, Jesus died for every one of those men and women. Every one of them. And while it's, it's fine to tell them this is wrong, what you're doing is wrong, again, if you can't do it in love, then you have no point, no purpose in being there. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that anything that we do without love is just making noise. And this world is already noisy enough, Derek. So I feel very strongly about this, um, but it's just, uh, you know, this is one of those things that's going to be between you and the Lord. Um, You know, we we need to remember that we are Jesus' ambassadors. And I just don't know a lot of people whose flesh is able to be controlled in circumstances like that. So Derek, that's the best I can do. It's a matter of, Um, If you feel strongly the Lord is sending you, and if in fact he is, then you will go in love and you'll rightly represent him. But going to confront um, is certainly never um, a reflection, at least a correct reflection of who Jesus is. Thank you, Derek, for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here's a question from Becky from our mobile app. Um, and she says, how can you say, just be with Jesus, and she has that in quotes, don't you think that is simplifying it too much? Becky, as I, I've been thinking about your question since I got it, for, for the life of me, I can't understand why we think our walk with Jesus is difficult. I really can't. Um, uh, I, I think Jesus purposely made it easy he gave us instructions. He told us how to thrive. If you abide in me, I will abide in you, he says. And so I, I, I'm, I'm missing, I guess, the reason or the motive for you thinking that this is simplifying it too much. Just be with Jesus is the answer to every single problem or circumstance that you're going to encounter. Um, you know, I, I, when I say just be with Jesus, I'm with him physically physically. I imagine that he's here with me. And Becky, here's the thing. Whatever you're going through, whether it's uh, you're, you're angry at somebody, you're holding on to unforgiveness, um, uh, maybe you're you're being tempted by something or tempted to do something that you, you know you shouldn't do. Uh, if you're just with Jesus, then you're going to do what he wants instead of doing what you want. And I think that's what it means when Jesus said, "I will be with you always to the end of the age." I think that's what he meant, and I think Becky, when we find ourselves in a situation where um we're we're trying to figure out things on our own and we're trying to come up with, well, how do I deal with this temptation or how do I deal with this problem in my life uh, I think we complicate it, and I can promise you, Becky, from my perspective, just be with Jesus has been. Um, the, the the saving grace for daily living in my life. If I'm with Jesus, I don't yell at somebody. I don't curse at somebody. I don't get angry with people. I don't get frustrated or impatient with people. Um, and I don't do it because he's with me. And I'm I'm acutely aware that I would be misrepresenting him when I do that. So I can't think of a simple situation in the world that could come up. That if you're with Jesus, he won't give you the right answer and lead you in the right direction to get through the difficulty. Once more, I want to say this, Becky, when we do what we think we ought to do, when we look for human counsel, we try to figure out, well, what's the best way to get through this trial or this this grief in my life? It's just Jesus. I'll give you an example. If you're grieving... Nobody understands your grief like he does. And he'll put his arm around you. And he'll just cry with you. Becky I had a friend whose uh, 16-year-old son committed suicide. This goes back now a lot of years now when I was in Bible college. And, and um, um, he just couldn't get over it. He felt responsible. The devil kept telling him it's his fault he was a bad dad and that kind of thing. And he wasn't a bad dad; he just that's just the way the enemy works in situations like this. And he said he just couldn't get over it, and one day he was at the cemetery, sitting where his son's grave was, and he said he was crying from a depth that he didn't know existed, and he said, supernaturally, all of a sudden i I, I knew there was an arm around me, and the one that was with me was crying at even a greater depth than I was. And he said, I know that was Jesus, and that's when I knew that I would somehow survive what I didn't think I could survive. So just be with Jesus. It's, it's, again, I think our walk is intended to be simple. I think he makes it that way because he knows us. And all I can say, I repeat, is every single issue that I have to deal with, he is the answer, and he gives me the right direction. Now for any of you who don't really know what Becky's talking about, uh just be with Jesus is something I say on this program. I say it even more to my church here, bless their hearts, they put up with all of my stuff that I keep saying over and over and over. But 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 that's the answer. If we practice his presence. When I first got saved, I wanted to be in his presence so so desperately. And I mean, I I my 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 salvation experience was pretty radical. But I wanted to be so close to him. I would I would set up a chair for him in my office, or I'd I'd uh, go to a restaurant and uh, I'd ask him what he wants. I'd set up a place setting on the other side of the table from me so I could be talking to him. And just from the very beginning, uh, I I've been practicing his presence. Um, I wanted to remember and never forget that he was always with me. That he would never leave me and just be with Jesus is how i did that and i can tell you becky and anybody else listening in the the audience who thinks that it's more difficult than that he has answered every question because that's what friends do and he called me his friend he called you his friend becky And I just don't think there's any other source of wisdom. Now, obviously, there's a lot of demon spirits, and you've got to test the spirits, those things that we think we hear the Lord speaking to our heart. We've got to test them against the Word of God. But Becky, just be with Jesus is beautifully and wonderfully simple. But it's not simplifying our walk with Jesus. He's the answer. If I feel my flesh starting to flare... And my flesh, Becky, I've been saved 31 years. My flesh stinks every bit as much today as it did 31 years ago. If I feel my flesh starting to flare, if I feel anger starting to well up, if I look at somebody and I have less than compassion on them, then all I have to do is remember that Jesus is right here with me. And then he gives me his compassion for them. He gives me the ability, the power to control my flesh. I don't lose my temper. I don't get angry. And all you have to do is remember that if Jesus were there with you physically, you wouldn't say things that you have to apologize for later. You wouldn't do things that you know are wrong. Because you'd be looking at his face. Well, all we have to do is have enough faith to know that he is here with us physically, Christ in us, the hope of glory. But remember, he alone provides the power. We have no strength to fight our flesh on our own. I think of Peter, and I don't have anybody holding on the line. That's why I'm taking some time with this. I think this is so important. I think of Peter arguing with the other disciples about who's going to be the greatest. And, of course, they all thought it was going to be them and and, and, and Peter, he seems to have been especially hurt by the, the argument. And that's when he walked up to Jesus and said, Lord, how, how many times do I have to forgive somebody that sinned against me seven times? And Jesus said, seven times seventy. Not seven. Well, how can we do that other than being with Jesus? He's the one who cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's the one that will be with you in a rough patch in a marriage. He's the one that will keep you from saying or doing things that you will regret for years and years and years. Every time that we move out from under the presence of Jesus, we forget He's there. That's when we mess up and do things that we will regret for a very, very long time. So, Becky, I hope that makes sense to you. It is... Beautifully simple, and it needs to be that way. 3409585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Teresa. She says, Pastor, what is meant by sowing to the Spirit and reaping from the Spirit? Well, Teresa, that kind of goes along with the question that I just answered. If you're with Jesus, you're sowing to the desires of the Spirit. And when you do that, you reap, you benefit from the Spirit of God. So instead of sowing to the flesh, you know, my, I'm angry and want to lose my temper. That's giving into the flesh. If instead I allow the Spirit of God to overpower me, uh, then then the benefit I get from being obedient uh, is going to be what I reap. We we reap what we sow, and in this case, Paul says that we're to sow to the Spirit. And here's here's what happens when you are sowing to the Spirit. Here's what you reap from the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. So that's what it means. It means your life is content. It means your, uh, your heart is filled with gratitude to God and, and, and f- for, for all the things that He's done for you. It means that you're walking by faith instead of by sight. It means that instead of satisfying you, you're satisfying God, and you're able then to reap from Him the benefits of His pleasure. Romans chapter 8, Teresa, let me recommend it for you tonight. Read Romans chapter 8. It's not terribly long. Read it, I don't know, four or five times tonight. That's what life in the Spirit is really all about. There's no condemnation for people that are sowing to the Spirit. Uh, when you're in Christ, uh, condemnation is the thing of the past. You're no longer bound by sin. Why? Because you're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You have the safety, the peace of knowing that if God is for you, who can be against you? And that's just a few of the promises in Romans chapter 8. But those promises are only available walking in the Spirit. That's what sowing to the Spirit is. And then the benefit of us sowing to the Spirit becomes evident not only in our own lives, but it becomes evident to all the people who are watching you as well. You know, Teresa, if you're home, and I don't know how old you are, I don't know if, you've, if you're if you married and have children or not, but, but let's just imagine you've got a home where Jesus is in charge, you're sowing to the Spirit at home, well, then you've got kids that love Jesus and you've got kids that see mom and dad's faith is real and genuine. You've got kids who are learning to say no to their flesh instead of saying yes. You've got a marriage that other people are able to watch and the Holy Spirit, will, isn't that what you want in your marriage? You see, that's what reaping from the Spirit is all about. So that's just a, a, a quick answer, Teresa. But uh, believe me, it is the one place that we all want to be. Romans chapter 8 is where our lives are intended to live. And by the way, and this is for you, Becky, if you just be with Jesus, Romans chapter 8 is where you'll live your life. Thank you. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hi, sir. How are you doing?
3: Jimmy, I'm doing Mm -hmm. good. Thank you. I can can hear you.
2: Oh, you know, I I feel that that Jesus is coming back really soon. I have this strong Mm -hmm. feeling. And, uh, you know, I just feel a lot of evil in the world right now. And I tell people mm-hmm. that, hey, you know what? Jesus Christ is coming back very soon. And they, they, some of them believe me and some of them look like, look at me like I'm crazy. But <laughs> I'm telling, them, look, no, no, he's coming back and we, we need to be prepared. And, uh, I don't know what time he's coming or whatever, but I know it's very soon. I just have this strong feeling. So my, you, I mean, in my, in your opinion, do you think I'm like, I don't know. I do you think that I'm kinda of like um I don't know, I look Annette? forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really look forward to it. I'm anxious I'm anxious for him to come back, but I look forward to it. But um that day. So yeah. what's your answer?
3: Jim Jimmy, let, let me let me run with that because I think that this is so important. A subject. Uh, I'm with you. I believe that Jesus is coming back at any moment. Um, the evidence all around us is overwhelming. And the reality is, we can't care what anybody else thinks. Um, the world, the unbelieving world is going to think we're crazy. Um, they're, they're going to dismiss us, we're going to be marginalized, but Jesus doesn't care about any of that. He just wants us to keep telling people that he's coming back. Now, I want you to look at the evidence, just the evidence, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in the first verse. Paul says, mark this, and he's saying goodbye. This is the, the, the most personal of Paul's epistles. Uh, he knows he's going to die. Uh, this is his last communication, uh, thus the most urgent And the most heartfelt, Uh, this is where he says, I've finished my race. I've fought the good fight. Uh, He says, I know there is in store for me crown of righteousness. And not just for me, but for all who are looking or longing for the appearing of the Lord. Jimmy, the best thing that could happen to anybody in this world who is a believer is for Jesus to come back right now. That's better than all of our hopes and dreams. That's better than winning the lottery. That's better than having a perfect, happy home life. It's better than having kids and grandkids. It's better than anything. Jesus coming back is the best thing that could happen to any one of us. And, and those of us who really know Jesus, we ought to live our lives um, with that kind of expectation. Imagine looking into his face, hearing his voice, that sounds like many rushing waters telling us, Well done, or or Jesus looking at you and saying, You did well, you fought to the end. That's the best thing that can happen. And in the world that we live in, I mean um, we're we're in a place where we we can't even say something is right or wrong anymore. We can't even decide uh, what a male or a female is anymore. Um, the world is just hopeless. Young people are committing suicide at rates that the world has never imagined before because they've bought into the lies of this world. The pain that we've suffered here in South Texas, and, and, and I mean, this is pain that the whole country has felt, certainly, but, but in Uvalde, um, uh, are we not yet ready to get out of this life? And it's not an escapism, it's a reward, It's a reward. Jesus, when he takes us to be with him, well, then he's going to begin judging the world. And we know then there's a finite period of time, seven years before he comes back and reestablishes his righteous kingdom on this earth. There is undeniably a spirit of deception that's out there. We have even professing Christians who have decided that Well, we know better than God does, better than his word. There's a falling away that's already taking place at at frightening speed, an apostasy. Um, Many professing Christians and denominations no longer accept that the Bible is the word of God. Those are the signs that Jesus said we should be paying attention to in the last days, people will be without natural affection. I want you to think about that. Now, that Greek word natural affection, it's a, a word that means it's, it's without the love that a mother feels for a child, the instinctive love that a mother feels for a child. When that young man killed those children, he was absent natural affection. Every time you hear people Who are protesting in the streets, screaming at the top of their lungs for their right to kill unborn children? That's without natural affection. 65 million of those unborn children have been murdered in our nation since 1973. We're at the end. And Jesus is coming. Now, Peter says that he's patient. He's not slow or slack regarding his promise. He's patient, unwilling that any should perish. But it's our responsibility in these last days, Jimmy, to to let people know because the time is short. Paul says that we're to redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. And if we think Jesus is going to sit in heaven and, oh, it's always going to be like this, um, just be grateful. If he doesn't come, be grateful that people are still getting saved. You know the 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 Calvary chapels that were born out of the Jesus People movement in the late sixties and early seventies. Um, they believed Jesus was coming at any moment, but but you know I'm glad He waited till at least 1991 because that's when I got saved. I would have been left behind. We've I've got a, a son who isn't a born again Christian, and and I'm grateful for God's patience. So for us we keep serving occupying until he comes but jimmy you keep telling people jesus is coming soon don't worry about what they say or think hey we've got 30 minutes left in the program we'd love your live calls 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR this is the word to stand on for life i'll be back in two minutes
1: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
3: Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left on our show today, 340-9585. Here's a question from Gene. He said, What is the best way for Christians to respond to someone who mocks our thoughts and prayers after a tragedy. Gene, we've got to be tougher than we are. Why do we need to respond to somebody? They mock us. They mocked Jesus. They hate us. They hated Jesus. They insult us. They insulted Jesus. He told us this was going to happen. Now, I would probably say something like, well, you're right. I'm sorry for offering my thoughts, but I'll be praying for you. Because that's what people need. They they don't understand prayer. So the best way to respond is to ignore them. And you just keep going about your business serving the Lord. Again, I want to emphasize to Eugene and to everybody in this audience, we Christians have got to stop being concerned about what other people think. The only thing that should matter is the condition of your heart when you're ministering uh, to others. That's the only thing that needs to matter. If God knows your heart is right and you know your heart is right, then it doesn't matter what anybody else in this world thinks. And so the best way to respond is not to respond at all. So Gene, be really, really careful, but we've got to realize that That's the way it is supposed to be. Not the way it's supposed to be, not the way it should be, but it's the way it is. So I hope that makes sense to you. Here's an anonymous question. I found a new church where the people are great, but they believe that the King James Version is the only version of the Bible that can be trusted. They also require women to wear dresses or skirts. Can I have your thoughts, please? Anonymous, that's a church that you ought to run away from. Um, it doesn't mean they're not saved. Uh, certainly, they're, they're not heretical. But um, requiring women to wear dresses or skirts is certainly legalistic. Um, e- even trying to posit that the King James is the only authorized version of the Bible is illogical. It makes no sense. The King James Bible, was 1611, that would mean... If it's the only authorized Bible, the one God wrote, they say, uh, then that means there was no Bible before 1611. God God did not have a word in the world. And that's simply nonsense. So these are just churches that are out there. I'm glad the people are great. Uh, but this isn't a church that, uh, especially uh, for somebody who's looking for a church home, that's not a place where you're going to find a lot of fruit. You're not going to find... Uh, A lot of uh, genuine, loving Christian fellowship uh, without grace. Without grace, there's no fellowship. And and these are churches that um, really don't understand grace and in many cases don't want to. So again, I'm not saying they're not Christians. Uh, I love the King James Bible. But the reality is um, that this is a spectrum of churches that have all kinds of problems uh, attendant with their beliefs. So I hope that makes sense to you. Anonymous, thank you. Andy says, why does Paul say that love is the best of all spiritual gifts? Andy, because love is the best of all spiritual gifts. It is, he he says, uh, the most excellent way. Um, I'll also say that without love, none of the gifts have any value. He says that himself. You can fathom all mysteries uh, you have faith that moves mountains, um, um, but with, without love, you're just making noise. So love is sort of the surrounding. You know, in, in Paul's epistles, and he talks about putting on love, and, and he tells us how to do it. Uh, Peter does the same thing uh, when he talks about adding to his faith these things, and and talks about the the kind of things that would, would be uh, evidence that Christians are growing in their faith. Um love is sort of like the overcoat. You know, love is the thing that keeps all of the other pieces of clothing in place. And so uh, of all the spiritual gifts, um, without love, uh, they have no value at all. And the, the man or the woman that is operating in, in what they would describe as spiritual giftedness um, is operating in the flesh without love. You know, Indy, I know this is going to make no sense to you, but but uh, there's a reason that 1 Corinthians 13 comes between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions were not divinely inspired um, when that was written. Um, concerning spiritual gifts, um, uh, Paul explains what those gifts are. In in chapter twelve and chapter fourteen, it talks about how to use those gifts in the corporate assembly, and right in the middle between those two instructions, are is, is the the famous chapter on love. And the idea there is, we're not communicating in the power of the Spirit at all if there's no love. My pastor Chuck Smith, who's now with the Lord, or our founding pastor, uh, Calvary Chapel. Um, he was asked one day um uh, about a, a particular man uh who was um uh, had a very well known in southern california and um and he was asked well well what do you think of his ministry do you think do you think he's spirit filled and and um and pastor chuck 's response was no love no love he just shook his head no love and that's the saddest condition of all in in so um you can speak in tongues, you can have great faith uh, you can you can um, interpret tongues, you can have the gifts of of wisdom and knowledge um, but but if if they're not encompassed by love, then those gifts have absolutely no value and they actually as was the case in Corinth, they actually become carnal gifts rather than gifts of the spirit. they're gifts that are are um, devastated by our flesh instead. Veronica wants to know, she says, I know Adam and Eve had kids, but how did their kids come? It seems like God blessed incest. Um, Veronica, obviously, when Adam and Eve were told to multiply, um, be fruitful and multiply, um, there were no other people. So when they had kids, boy kids and girl kids, um, when that was the case... Um, those boy kids and girl kids, brothers and sisters, and eventually cousins, and and uh, eventually they they would have to come together and have sex and make babies. Uh, that's not incest. I want you to think about this. Even right after the fall, right after the fall, we don't know if Cain and Abel were the only kids they had in the in in uh, immediately after the fall, um, but but. We know they had many other kids, and it was a world where people lived to be sometimes more than 900 years old, the, the almost perfect gene pools, so there was none of the, the negative aspects of of relatives um, having sexual relations and having kids, but it was the only way. Let me also say this, and people don't understand this, but but... Until the law was given to Moses, incest wasn't a sin. How do we know something's a sin? God tells us it's a sin. So it's not like God blessed incest. He would never do that. But what he did was he blessed their obedience to be fruitful and multiply all over the earth. I know that sounds creepy to us, Veronica, but but believe me, it's nothing like brothers and sisters... um, um, having kids today or cousins or anybody else. It's a completely different thing and it was the only way, again with a perfect gene pool or near perfect gene pool, it was the only way that the earth could be multiplied. So I hope that makes sense. Let me take one step further. Veronica, you know we're all descendants of Adam and Eve but even more closely related, we're all descendants of Noah and his sons. And daughters-in-law. Because only eight people were saved in, after the flood. And, and it was like God started all over. Um, no incest. That was just the way to multiply. So I hope that makes sense to you, Veronica. Lori says, Pastor on I know Christians have to be pro-life, but why do we expect unbelievers to accept laws against abortion? Um, Laurie, I don't think any Christian really has an expectation that unbelievers are going to uh, accept laws against abortion. We know that's not the case. So it's not a matter of expectation. But this is a matter of right and wrong. Uh, We have laws against murder. And Christians and unbelievers have to obey those laws. Why? Because that's the right thing to do. Abortion is murder, period. And I know there's there's difficult emotions involved. Uh, I know there's different motives, but the reality is, an innocent unborn child is murdered in the womb, and laws against murder have to be accepted by everybody. You know, I had the question earlier. Uh, from Jimmy, about Jesus coming soon, one of the signs of the end is is right and wrong now there there's there seems to be no objective right and wrong. Um, people have taken truth and personalized it. Well my truth and your truth are different truths, and I believe this, and you believe that um but the reality is is there's only one truth, and that 's what God says, and he says murder is a grievous sin. And so that's a sin that has to be universally accepted. Now again, I have no expectations that they're going to, but that doesn't mean that we who are believers don't stand for righteousness, the right thing. You know in our world, I think we can have almost universal agreement about one thing. And and when I say almost universal agreement, believe it or not, there are people who will never agree with this, but I think we can say that molesting children is wrong. And overwhelmingly, 98% of the people in the world will say, that's right. You know, we got to take child molesters and rid the world of them. Um, we're losing sight of even that wrong these days. But we still have to say, this is right and this is wrong. We can't even decide... Then the male is a male and the female is a female anymore, Lori. And we got to push back. We can't get caught up in the trap, the the propaganda persuasion. We've got to stand for that which is right. And Christians need to stand. This is a battle worth fighting. Now we got to fight it like Jesus. We don't fight it with worldly weapons, according to Paul's letter to the Corinthians but with spiritual weapons. But we've got to take a stand against the murder of innocent, unborn children. And do I have any expectation? No. Our country is, I think, about to blow up over this issue. Um, I'm not going to be an extremist and say it's going to lead to civil war, but believe me, uh, I think things are going to get really bad. If, in fact, the Supreme Court is going to um, rid us of Roe v. Wade and that horrible, horrible decision, um, you're going to see the ugliest part of people in this world. Do I expect them to repent? No. But we still have to stand and fight. We still have to stand in Righteousness. And I think too often we're trying just to get along with people, not to rock the boat. And there are just some issues, Lori, that we can't do that. Marriage between a man and a woman is one of those. The silliness about transgenderism, all the different genders now that the world recognizes We've got to be able to say no to those things. Because if we don't, then we have no credibility. We have no place to stand. When we're not standing in a righteous rock, there's no other place to stand. So, Laura, I hope that answers your question. Dave asks, are the rapture and the second coming one event or two? I'm confused. Dave, they are two events completely separate from one from the other. The rapture is not Jesus returning to this earth. The rapture is Jesus calling those of us who live on the earth at the time of the rapture, calling us to meet him in the air. So it's not Jesus coming back to earth in the rapture. He's calling us up to meet him in the air. And we will be with him during the time we call the Great Tribulation the second coming of Jesus when he actually sets his feet down on terra firma, uh, on the Mount of Olives, and it will split in two. We're going to be coming with him. We will have been with him in heaven. We're going to be coming back to earth with him. And that's when he's going to establish his kingdom. That's when he's going to judge the world. You can read about that, Dave, in Revelation chapter 19. That's the second coming. And whenever you read, especially in the Old Prophets, um, uh, the, the day of the Lord uh, that day refers to his coming and establishing his kingdom now in a more general sense the day of the Lord also refers to um, his wrath the seven year great tribulation but, but when he comes the second time he's coming to earth the whole world will see and King Jesus will be celebrated. So that ought to unconfuse you, Dave, but they're not the same. And I know there's a lot of people who um, are trying to make out, like, well, if you believe in the rapture, that's three com- that Jesus is coming there three times. That's simply not true. The rapture, Jesus will never see the earth, at least physically, will be caught up to be gathered with him in the air. Good question. Jerry has a perplexing question. He said, if original sin is true, and it is true, Jerry, he says, if original sin is true, how can you say kids who die go to heaven if they're born with sin? Jerry, John chapter 3, Jesus makes it really clear that uh, when we are born, we are born condemned already. You know, we look at a baby, and a baby's so cute, and they smell so fresh, and they, they make the greatest noise in the world. We think, oh, baby's purely innocent. No, no, no. We're born condemned already because we're born with sin nature. And if you've been around any children, you know it doesn't take very long for them to start sinning. Now, the difference, though, Jerry, is their awareness of sin. Their awareness of sin. What are they accountable for? Were they able to make a decision on their own? Now we don't know what the so-called age of accountability is, and I think it varies with with kids everywhere. But I'll give you an example from the tragedy in Uvalde. Um, here's what I know happened. Before that, um, deranged, demon-possessed young man began firing. That school, Rob Elementary, was inundated by angels. And those angels were there to take those children into the presence of the Lord. Now, eight-year-olds, six-year-olds, they do stuff that's wrong. They know it's wrong. But they don't have the sufficient accountability level to be judged by God. And that's just God's grace and His mercy and His justice. But here's the thing. The minute we know that what we're doing is wrong and we're accountable and and Jesus has given us the ability to understand that he is the answer for our sin, until that time, God's going to take all these children into his presence. Our aborted babies are with him. David said of his son that that died, the son that was a result of his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, As soon as he heard that he died, he stopped mourning. And he said, you know, before he died, I was pleading with God, maybe God would change his mind. But now that he's with God, he can't come to me, but I will go to him. And this is so important, Jerry, especially in the light of Uvalde. Every one of those parents has the ability to ensure, beyond any doubt, that they're going to see their children again. Imagine that. I mean, the the, the horror of that moment, if you would never see your child again. But they went into the presence of Jesus. So you're right, they're born condemned already. We're born with a sin nature. But we're only accountable for what we do with what we know. And that requires the ability to logically process information. Think about these things in a mature way. So what that age is, Jerry, I don't know. But I just know those kids are in the presence of the Lord. Three four Let's go to Scott in Von Orme. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the
4: air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Great to hear your voice on the radio.
3: Thank you, Scott. Thanks for calling.
4: I got two questions. Um, let me kind of put them both out there uh, one and uh, I, I refer to I think it's in First Thessalonians and the Hebrews but but I've heard it taught where the the soul and spirit are basically represented the, representing the same thing but yet in the New Testament there um, it talks about the word sharper than a two-edged sword able to divide the the soul and spirit also it lists um, also that uh the spirit, soul, and body—I think another scripture reference there. So that's one of my questions: is 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 the soul and spirit the, considered the same thing, or maybe in certain parts of the Bible it is the same thing? And then my other question mm-hmm. was: um, I know I know that man is made in the image of God, and we have a soul. Um, and I've heard it—I've heard it mentioned both ways. But do animals have soul? And if they do, or if they don't? What is the scriptural reference for one side or other of that, of that position? And uh, anyway, I just want to listen to your answers on the, on the air.
3: Thank you. Appreciate it. A uh, couple of things. First, soul and spirit, um, uh, typically they're interchangeable. When the, when the Bible talks about the, the, the soul or the spirit, um, um, we're talking about the real person. You know, my my life, um, um, to, to anybody who would look at me, I look like I'm this old man in this dumpy body. Uh, but that's not really me. The real Ron lives inside this old dumpy tent. And so uh, that's my soul, or we refer it to spirit. Uh, it's the same thing. So uh, that's most of the time the context determines it. Now, when you talk about uh, Hebrews, where it says it divides between soul and spirit... That's more descriptive in that it's talking about uh, the desires of the spirit living in us or the desires of the soul. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. He talks about what I want to do, I can't do, what I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing, oh wretched man that I am. Um, the, the Bible cuts and divides between what we want to do and what we ought to do. And, and that's the difference between soul and spirit as it relates there. And the context there is different. It just divides between what we know is right and what we know is wrong. So, interchangeable soul and spirit when talking about um, um, being in heaven, uh, Christ in us, the hope of glory. But when it talks about the word dividing, it's dividing between right and wrong. What we know is right versus what we want to do even if we know that it's wrong. So, that's what that's about. Now... Being made in the image of God really has nothing to do with the soul, um, beyond the, that we're all going to live somewhere forever. Uh, being made in the image of God, and this gets so much confusion, Scott, because uh, what people want to do is, is they want to think, well, I made, I'm just like God because I was made in the image of God. No, we're, we're, we're like God based on three things. One, God's nature Is that he chooses. We're made in the image of God. We also have to choose. God makes choices of those who are his, and we make choices. Secondly, it means that we're all eternal. The minute we're born, the minute we're conceived in our mother's womb, we're going to live somewhere forever. We're never going to die. As God is eternal, the I am, um, he always was, he always will be, uh, then then we too are made in the image of God in the sense that we're going to be eternal. And then the third thing is back to choice and the combination of our eternality. We have to be in that place. We have to be in that place uh, where we choose where we're going to spend eternity. So this doesn't have anything to do with our soul other than the fact that we're going to live somewhere forever and ever. And the idea that our being made in the image of God means anything more than that is fantasy. Uh, We like it. And dogs, animals don't have souls. They're created, not made in the image of God. And we have detailed instruction about how they're created. Uh, They're not made in the image of God, but they're made for the pleasure of mankind. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Boy, the time went fast the second half of the program. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Remember, we've got our Sweet Summer Devotion series tonight. Pray for Michaela Shank. She's nervous, but she'll do great. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.